0: Good morning, everybody. We just love the work that Loving Choices is doing. And on the back of your study guides this week, you'll notice some, some, some prayer requests and things that we would like the church to be praying for, for Loving Choices over the next few weeks. So definitely we look forward to you doing that in your life groups and keeping them on your mind. Well, hey, we are in our series called Rescued. So if you would open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter four, that's where we're going to be today, Exodus chapter four. And uh, while you're finding that, let me just quickly refresh your memory as to uh, where we're at in the study. Last week, we learned about this amazing encounter between God and Moses. And if you recall the details, Moses presented himself to, excuse me, God presented himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And we've come to understand that that bush was on fire, but that fire did not consume the bush. And this strange sight that Moses was looking at, that's what drew him in to take a closer look. And then God speaks to Moses through this bush. And he says he has heard the cries of the Israelite people and that he is going to act on their behalf. And he says, Moses, you're gonna have a very important role to play in my deliverance and if you recall the details Moses was really excited about God calling him to do this and he couldn't wait to get on the road and see what would happen good you're reading you know that that's not no he was not excited at all no he he didn't want to be God's guy In fact, as you learned last week in our study, he tried to give God every reason he could think of to try to communicate hey, you've got the wrong guy. You need to find somebody else. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 13, that's exactly what he said. He begged God, please, just send somebody else. But God did assure him that he was the right man for the job. And he God even allowed a concession. He said, I'll let you take Aaron with you, and Aaron will do some of the talking for you. And, and if you follow the rest of that chapter, and we summarized it last week, that they, he and Aaron, they went to the leaders of Israel, and they told them all about how God had heard their prayers, and how God had presented himself in a burning bush, and God had a great plan to rescue them. And then Moses was able to perform all the signs. Remember the staff that turned into a snake, and then back to a staff again. The hand into a shirt came out leprous, then it was healed and then the water from the the Nile turning into blood. He was able to do all of that for them, and as his proof, and, and they believed him, and they worshiped. They did not worship Moses. They bowed down and worshiped God. And what I was hoping to point out in last week's message is that you know Moses really isn't all that different than us at times. Moses was reluctant. He thought that God had picked the wrong guy. When he called his name from the burning bush, And you know, sometimes we can feel like that too. And sometimes we're tempted to make some excuses about, God, I don't think I'm that guy, or I can't do this thing, or I've got insecurities, I don't believe that I can be the person you need for this, maybe send somebody else, and sometimes we can see some similarities in our own behavior. But I can tell you, reluctant or not, the Bible tells us that Moses did indeed go to Egypt. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he went there with all the confidence in the world. And it doesn't mean that he went there um, completely on board with God, completely sold out to God's plan. No, there's still some things that Moses has to work out and God has to work out through him and to him. But God assures him, I'm going to take care of Everything And what I find amazing here in, in this part of the Bible is that God details for him in advance everything that is going to take place. But even though Moses has been given advanced knowledge of many of the details that are going to happen, um, getting completely aligned with God and what God was doing, well, that's going to take some time. And we see this at the end of chapter 4 in what has to be some or one of the most bizarre encounters that you're gonna read about anywhere in the Bible I'm referring to the last part of chapter 4 verses uh, 24 through 26 where God wanted to kill Moses that's right the Bible says that God was ready to kill Moses but Moses wife stepped in and the Bible says she circumcises her son and rubbed Moses' feet with his foreskin, and that turned aside God's anger towards Moses. You can say it. that's weird. Uh, let's just a minute. Now, I know that these verses have baffled many of you, because for the past several of weeks, I have been fielding many questions from many of you about these specific verses from chapter four. In fact, I would say that I have probably tried to respond and answer to more questions about these couple of verses than I think anything that I've ever preached before here, and uh, which makes me kind of regret asking you to read ahead, just to be quite honest with you. No, I'm, I'm, I don't regret that at all. I'm just kidding. I'm teasing you. I tell you, even my mother, who lives in Oklahoma and is going through this rescued series with us online, she called me this past week and she wanted to know, hey, what's up with this circumcision thing in Moses' feet, what's going on there? You're asking questions. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, so I guess you didn't read it yet. Mmm, no, I'm, kidding. I, I'm only playing with you. As strange as it may sound, believe it or not, there is actually a very logical reason for why these verses are in here, why this happened and what this is all about. And you might actually be kind of surprised just how close to home it actually hits. But before we get to that part towards the end of chapter four, I want us to back up just a little bit and I'd like for us to start our study today at verse 18 where God calls Moses to go to Egypt and he has to go to his father-in-law and he has to talk some things out with him. And um, now, obviously last week I summarized that do, he does go to Egypt. But there are some important details on the journey from Midian to Egypt that we should not neglect. So we're going to start at verse 18, and we're just going to walk down the text today in a very expository way, and and we're just going to dialogue together here. It says in verse 18, When Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if there are any of them still alive. And Jethro said, Go, I wish you well. Is that the real reason for why Moses is returning to Egypt? Well, not really, not exactly. It's not the complete reason, anyway. Uh, The real reason, as we know, is God is gonna use Moses to rescue the Israelites. But why why didn't Moses tell him the whole story? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. All we have is what the text says, and Moses seems to say that my motivation, my reasoning, for going to Egypt is, I just want to see if I still know anybody, or there's any of my people that are still alive. And maybe there is some truth in that. Maybe in the back of Moses' mind, he did want to find out, but it's not all the truth. I wonder what he was concerned about. And again, it's a speculation a little bit. Maybe he told him everything. Maybe he told him about the burning bush. Maybe he told him about God hearing the cries of the Israelites. But like I said, we just have what the text says. But if he held back some of these details, I wonder why. Was, was maybe Moses a little bit concerned that perhaps Jethro wouldn't agree? Or maybe try to talk him out of it? Uh, maybe Jethro would have said something like, you know, Moses, um, you know, we're going to have a great flock this year and I don't think it's the right time for you to leave. Remember, Jethro was his employer, not just his father-in-law. Maybe, just maybe, he was worried that Jethro would be like, you can go, but you're not taking my daughter and my grandkids. I, I, we really don't know. But regardless, his reasoning for the gave Jethro was, I want to go see if any of my people are still alive. Look at verse 19. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. W- w- who wanted to kill Moses? Well, Pharaoh wanted to kill him for one. Why did he want to kill him? Well, because he had murdered an Egyptian. There were probably plenty of people that, that had anger in their eyes towards what Moses had done. And God's just saying, hey, they're all dead now. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hands. Just a little background here. Um, Have you remember how many years now has Moses been living in Midian? 40 years. 40 years. That's a long time. So God just says, over the 40 years, anybody that wanted anything to do with you, Moses, they're gone. Basically, the statute of limitations has been reached, and and don't worry about it. You're not going to be arrested on sight. The family of the Egyptian who you killed, they're gone too. They don't even think about you anymore. And there's obviously a new Pharaoh in leadership. And maybe, just maybe, this Pharaoh wiped out all all the crime debt that anybody owed or penalties. Maybe as a new leader, he just said... Hey, I'm going to wipe this leg clean of you, which is not all that uncommon. We have records of leaders doing that. like, really, God just wanted him to know, Moses, you got nothing to worry about. I'm going to remove this hindrance. If, if Moses was worried that what he did 40 years earlier was going to be a problem for him, God's saying, don't worry about it. I'm taking care of it. It's not going to be a problem anymore. So he loads up his family. Off they go to Egypt. And I've often wondered how much his family really knew about this trip to Egypt. It seems like he didn't give all the details to Jethro. I wonder if maybe his wife and his children were kinda on a need to know basis as well. The Bible doesn't tell us that. It's just things that I wonder about. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what Moses' family knew. Maybe they knew it all, I I really don't know. But the Bible here says that, that Moses took with him the staff of God. Do you realize that he actually has a name for his shepherd staff. Here, did you catch that when we read it? The staff of God. Now this is really interesting to me because this is really just a shepherd staff. This is the staff he had when he was out tending his flocks when God called him in the burning bush. But now, when he's going to Egypt, he's calling it the staff of God. Um, I would guess that after Moses watched his shepherding staff turn into a snake and then turn back into a staff, I, I would imagine he never saw that staff the same way again. I'm just thinking what I would do if I was coming home at night and I put my staff against the door there and I was like, don't go anywhere, and I mean it. Or maybe like, am I gonna find this the same way? I, I don't know, but this staff takes on kind of a, a little different um, persona, if you will. Now I want to remind you of something. Moses wrote Exodus and Moses wrote this years later. So by the time Moses is writing down the account of the Exodus, it has already happened. So this is many years later, he's looking back and he's telling the story. And I think as he looks back, he calls it the staff of God because he knows everything that God did through him with his staff in his hand. So by this point, when he's talking about Moses goes to Egypt and he had with him the staff of God, he's speaking from a context of experience oh, I know what that staff did. It's not just a shepherd's staff, that's the staff of God. Now you're gonna see this as we unpack the details of the Exodus, but we've already seen how that staff went to the ground and turned into a stake and came back to a staff again. We know that with that staff, he goes to meet with the leaders of the Israelites and he does the same thing. It turns into a snake and it turns back. This is no ordinary staff, this is the staff of God. We know that in chapter 7, Aaron will take Moses' staff and he will throw it down in front of Pharaoh. This is when they confront the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh's like, that's a nice trick, I can do that too. So he brings in all his magicians and things and and they create a bunch of snakes. But what's interesting is when Aaron throws it down, it turns into a snake and it eats all the other snakes. This is that staff. This is the instrument that Aaron had in his hand that uh, brings about the first three plagues. The Nile, the water, into blood, the frogs, and the gnats. This is Aaron had this thing in his hand. Um, this is the staff that's in Moses' hand when we read about in chapter 9 and chapter 10 of uh, plagues number uh, 7 and 8, the hail and the locusts. This, is, this staff is in Moses' hand. This is the staff that's in Moses' hand when, when he stands in front of the sea and he raises his hands and, and the waters part. This is staff of God is in his hand when that happens. There'll be other things that take place. Moses will use a staff to strike a rock and water will come out and it's with this staff in his hand that he fights back the Amalekites. So I'm not at all surprised that as Moses, many years later, is writing the details of the Exodus, he didn't say, oh, I took my separate staff with me. No, 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 no. I took the staff of God with me. Because he knows. He's going to write all about what happened with this. I... In some ways, I think his shepherding staff, in a way, becomes another character in the story of the Exodus. And I would think that whenever people saw Moses with that staff in his hand, it was almost like a visual representation of God's presence with his people. So it's not just a shepherding staff. This is, I think he calls it the right thing. This is the staff of God. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is actually a very loaded verse. When God says, I will harden his heart, I can just tell you that that phrase alone, which will come up many times in Exodus... It has presented a lot of problems for people. And so, for example, there are people that will, will read that and they'll ask the question. These are just questions that arise from the scriptures. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, does that mean that Pharaoh cannot be held morally responsible for his actions? Have you wondered about this? Others will read that and go, wait a minute, I thought God gave mankind free will. Does Pharaoh not have free will? Some might say, hey, why should we come down so hard on Pharaoh if it was God's doing all along? Sometimes we read in the scripture that it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh's heart was hard. There's a lot of things. Over 20 times this kind of language comes up into our text. And um, it's gonna come up again and again. We're gonna keep coming back to it. So I'm just gonna let you know that there will be a, a sermon in the future where we will dive a little bit deeper into this phrase and unpack this a little bit more. We're not gonna do it right now. I'm just highlighting the full point that this is the first time that we read this language. We will read it many more times. But I do want to say one thing about it, just here, more of a, in an introductory way, and we'll unpack it more later. But when God is telling Moses that I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart, remember, he's telling him this all ahead of time before it ever happens. I believe this is God laying out of his plan, letting Moses know what's gonna happen as a form of encouragement to Moses. It's it's like saying, you are gonna stand before the most powerful man in the world and you are gonna say, let my people go, and he's gonna say, no way. And I think this is God's way of saying, Just know that's coming. And just know that I've got my hand on everything. And all this is playing out exactly how uh, it's going to. And I don't want you to be worried about it. I I, I think I think there's something inside of Moses. It would be inside of us all. And again, I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm just I'm speculating into this a little bit. Moses, I'm sure, has got reluctancy. We read it. I don't know if I want to go. There's it's gonna take boldness to stand up to Pharaoh, and God's saying, Listen, I'm gonna encourage you here. This is gonna happen. You're gonna say this and he's gonna say this. You're gonna do this and he's gonna react this way and I'm gonna do this and I just want you to know what's coming. Don't worry about it. I've got everything under control. That's really what God is, is acknowledging here. When it happens, I gotcha. Don't you worry about it. Um, I wonder if we, ex- if we experience this same kind of encouragement today. Do we see the same kind of encouragement as we look out things that are happening in this world? Because I ask this question, what, what are some things that God has claimed control over today that we struggle to see him in control of? Can you think of some of those things? What are those? some of those things that God said, I got this, don't you worry about it. But we struggle to see his control over it. You know, I think one obvious one might just come to, you know, what's going on in our country. And we see what I believe what many Christians would say, our nation is heading in the wrong direction. I think some, I think it's a, I think some Christians would say that. And we see some of the decisions being handed down. And we look at some of the debates that are happening on Capitol Hill. And we, and we sit back and go, this world's going nuts. How can anybody think this way? And then every time we think that, it feels like it gets more that way. And it's really easy as a Christian to sit back and go, God, are are you seeing what I'm seeing? Do you not have control anymore of what's going on? It's hard for us to, to believe sometimes that God is still directing traffic in our nation just like he was during the Exodus. But what if he is? And I say that hypothetically because I believe in my heart that he is. But what if he is? Do you think that there is anything happening today that God doesn't have his hand on still? What's happening here in Exodus isn't the last time that we read about God directing the traffic of the world. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we read about the sweeping success of an ungodly king, an ungodly politician named Cyrus. In fact, Cyrus is so successful that he attributes all of his success to this false god, Murdoch. That's what he says, Murdoch did this for me. Yet in reality, what we know from the Bible is that it was actually God who gave this evil, idolatrous politician All of his success. Did God give him this great success because he just liked the guy? It doesn't seem to indicate that. No, this is an ungodly, idolatrous king, but his success is what opened the door for the deliverance of the Israelites. And believe it or not, God gave King Cyrus success. As a way to convince all people that he alone is the one true God. That he alone is the king of the universe. So God allows some success for this ungodly king Cyrus. So that something that he was doing would come to fruition. Now we see this very clearly when you read about it in Isaiah chapter 45. And I'm just going to read a couple of these verses for you and you'll see what I mean. If you look at the screen behind me. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. To Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of. Do you understand what God is saying? Cyrus, you think you're something, but it was me. Like a little kid, I took you by the hand and I led you all the way through this. That's what God is saying. I take hold of it to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you. And will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. I summon you by name and bestow upon on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Do you ever see what God's doing here? I'm doing this for you. I'm opening up the storehouse. I'm giving you these things. You don't acknowledge me. You don't think this is me. But I'm telling you, it is me. He says in verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other it couldn't be any clearer that God was in control of the comings and goings and the politics and everything that this king, this ungodly king was involved with. And God says, you you know why I'm leading you by the hand and giving you this success? Because I got a bigger plan in mind. I got something else happening. And there's going to come from this, your success that I give you, this acknowledgement. Even though you don't acknowledge me, there will come an acknowledgement from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. They will know that I'm the one true God. That's why you're having the success. It says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse one, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. So sometimes the temptation as a Christian is to sit back and look at everything happening and, and assume that the Lord has taken his hand off the wheel. And that the way things are progressing in our world, that's just because of the sinfulness of mankind. Now, I will say, I do believe that there are many consequences that we suffer today because of the sinful actions taken by our leaders. But I don't believe for one second that God has taken his hand off the wheel in our country or in our world. Who's to say That what we claim today to be these disastrous decisions by our leaders is actually God directing traffic as to bring something big for his glory down the road. Just like he did with Cyrus. Just like he's doing here with Pharaoh. Now I know I'm starting to unpack a whole theological thing and we'll unpack a little bit more in the weeks ahead. But I very much believe God's got his hand on the wheel. And I very much trust God. I believe that God is giving Moses a play by play of what is happening and what is going to happen as an encouragement to Moses that God is in control of it all. And what he wants Moses to do is to trust him. It's the same thing God wants from each one of us. You don't have to understand everything, just trust me because I've got the whole thing under control. The song we used to sing in Sunday school as a kid, he's got the whole world in his hands. There's a lot of truth in that. So not only is God in control of what's happening in Egypt, God was in control of what's happening and other government leaders, God's in control. Not only that, but what are some other areas in our lives where it's easy for us to sit back and wonder, God, do you got your hand on any of this? You know, sometimes when it comes to our families, we can wonder God, don't you see what's going on in my family? God, can you please just step in and do something here? I don't understand what's going on here. I thought I was doing the right thing, Lord, but what has transpired? And sometimes we can wonder, God, do you not care about my family? Are you still in control of what's going on with my family? You know, yesterday was a very difficult day here at New Life, where we had the funeral right right here. Um, for Princeton Harmon, great young man, one of the pillars of our student ministry, 17 years old, and um, I sure wish God would fill me in on what he's up to there. I wish that I could see how the story ends. I wish I I knew, God, what are you up to with this young death What are you going to do with that? And who's going to, what's going to become of this? I wish I knew all these answers. I don't know those answers right now, but what I do know is that I can trust God in it. And I can trust Him to direct traffic. And I can trust that He's got a bigger plan at play. I, I can trust that God has purpose. So God doesn't ever ask me to understand everything, He asks me to trust Him, the one who does. And I believe there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on with Moses. This is gonna happen. You can trust me. I've got this under control. Don't you worry about it. It's all gonna play out like I planned. I just want you to obey. So go to Pharaoh. Perform these signs. Tell him everything that I've told you. And his heart's gonna be hard. And he's not gonna want to listen to you and he's not definitely gonna obey. And then after that, This is what I want you to tell him. Look at verse 22. Then you say this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord God, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. Now remember again, God is telling Moses this on the way to Egypt this has not happened yet this is an encouragement to Moses verse 23 gives us some great insight into exactly how God feels about the Israelites this nation that he promised to Abraham this nation that's gonna rise up this nation that's gonna be a blessing to the world this nation that's gonna give us Jesus this is how God feels about them he says they are my firstborn they're my eldest son so God's description of the Israelites is a very personal description. And there's only one way for us to understand the the statement. God is going to say to Pharaoh, "You release my firstborn son or I'm going to kill yours." That's the seriousness of this. And if you know, if you've read ahead, then you know that that is exactly what's going to happen. That is the fate of the final plague. God will take the firstborn of the Egyptians. He will take Pharaoh's firstborn. And only after that happens does Pharaoh finally relent and let the Israelites go. So with this knowledge, Moses, along with his family, they set out for Egypt. But along the way, it would seem that God gets very upset with Moses. Somewhere between the land of Midian and Egypt, They stop at this lodging place and the Bible says that God's about to kill him. And that brings us to this bizarre couple of verses in the Bible that so many of you have asked about. So let's read it and let's let's see what's going on here. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, that was Moses' wife, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Does that clear it up for you? (laughs) Some of you are like, I was better on my own, Joe, thanks. (laughs) You know, I, I speculate that maybe one of the reasons for why these verses tend to be confusing at first read is because it doesn't feel like we have all the details here, does it? Well, what happened? There there feels like there needs to be a little bit more lead up to all we know is God was mad at, at Moses. And so one of the reasons it feels confusing is because it feels like we don't have all the facts. But we do know something for certain. And knowing this one detail for certain will help us fill in the gaps. We know for certain why God was angry with Moses. And because we know for certain why God was angry with Moses, we can start to kind of move backwards and kind of understand what led to that anger. God was angry with Moses because Moses had not circumcised his son. That's what fueled the anger. And why is that a big deal? Why was God so angry over the fact that Moses had neglected or failed or refused to circumcise his son? Well, to understand God's intensity with his anger, we have to go back to the book of Genesis. We have to go back to Genesis 17. And you don't need to turn there, but let me just show you where this is coming from. It says in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, this is a conversation between between God and Abraham At the very beginning, and God is setting up his covenant, and God is saying, this is what I want. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. So who are the descendants of Abraham? That would be the Israelites, who right now are in slavery in Egypt. Of which Moses is one. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner." Those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Why has Moses' son not been circumcised? Was this still Moses being a reluctant prophet? Was this Moses' way of trying to convince God, I got the wrong guy, I don't even obey you. Was this Moses not getting along with his wife? Maybe he wanted to circumcise, maybe she didn't. Maybe they couldn't find family harmony, so he did nothing. We don't know. Was Moses thinking that if I don't circumcise my son, then God can't use me, I'm off the hook, and I can't go to Egypt? I don't know. I I don't know the answer to this question. But no matter what, at the end of the day, Moses had not obeyed God in one of the most basic, fundamental, absolutely clear commands of God that he expected from everybody. And God was so angry about it, he was about to take his life. But that's when Moses' wife steps in. The Bible doesn't tell us How she found out or what she knew what to do or what the problem was. We don't have any of those details. All we know is that she finds out about it. She steps in and she, not Moses, but she proceeds to circumcise her son. In other words, she acted faithfully. She acted more faithfully than Moses here and in doing so her act of faithfulness saved her husband's life. And there's some I, I feel like it's we should go back and repreach Genesis 17 to fully understand this. I'm not going to, but that sermon is online. It's from our origin series. That was the sermon that uh, Jason French preached and he still has not forgiven me for assigning him that text just to let you know. <laughs> now nah, he has. We're friends. But she is showing Moses here with, these, with this action where she stepped in faithfully. She's showing him that we are only right. Before God through the blood and his covenant promises. In other words, apart from this shedding of blood, and friends, there's there's a whole lot of stuff moving forward with these concepts. But for right now, she's showing him that without the shedding of this blood, Moses is really no different than anybody else. He's no different than the Egyptians. This mark of circumcision was an agreement. It was a covenant between God and his people. It was the physical distinction that set them apart. And so the reality is this. Moses couldn't lead the people of Israel if he was disobedient to this foundational commandment of the Lord. I mean, God is calling his people out to be different. This is to be a holy nation, holy unto God. How in the world could God use Moses if Moses himself would not share the same distinction and the same emphasis and the same priority that God? The the reality is, he couldn't. Now, I could say a lot more about it, but this is just one of those moments. This is one of several stories that Moses tells on himself. Now remember, this is Moses as a much older, wiser Man who's been through it all with God. This is him writing down and writing about a time in his life when he wasn't there yet. He writes about killing the Egyptian. He writes about his reluctancies to obey God and his and his insecurities. And now he writes about a time when he wasn't being fully obedient to God and God almost took his life. Again, remember the context. This is an older, wiser, more mature Moses writing about a time When he wasn't. So I have a question for you today. I've got two questions really. In light of all of this. Why are we like Moses sometimes. When it comes to obeying God. How come sometimes. This kind of behavior. Can be exhibited in our lives. Like I'm walking with God, I'm journeying with God, I'm trying to trust God, but maybe there's something that we're still struggling with, obeying God. Why is it that sometimes some Christians can be like that? Which leads me to my next question. And this is one for all of us. And the question is this, are you fully obeying God in all walks of life? I mean, is there any aspect of you striving to live for the Lord where there's where just something that you're not being obedient in? Or are you blending into the world in some aspect of your life? So this thing with Moses, this circumstance, it was this one thing that he was not being obedient on. And I'm just challenging you here, church. I don't, I can't answer this for you. But is there any aspect of your life that God has clearly spoken over in his word but as of right now, you're not being obedient with it. And if there's something that comes to your mind, then my challenge for you today is to repent. Get down on your knees and repent. Draw a line in the sand and say, no more. No more. You've called us to be a holy people, separate from the world. And this part of my life looks like the world, and no more. The sin in my life, I repent of. God, please forgive me. Help me walk anew. Only we, only you can answer that about you. But the culmination of walking down this text leads me to that question. Is there any, anything like Moses in us? Trying to live for God, but I'm just not being obedient in this one area. Only you can answer that. I hope that this has helped you understand better these bizarre and confusing verses on a surface lead, read. But once you dig down a little bit deeper, there's some real spiritual truths still spiritual realities for us today. And I hope that helps. Now, quit asking me tough questions, all right? No, I'm just kidding. I look forward into the next part. We really dig in to, to Moses in front of Pharaoh in Egypt. It is something. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just thank you for um, this time that we can um, unpack your word. And Lord, just as we started, just walk down the verses together, it's obvious that there are some deep, theological questions that are raised. And Lord, sometimes these questions cause us to question you. And so Lord, my prayer is that as we dig into this deeper as a church, you'll help us clearly see what you're doing. Lord, I pray that you help us as a church family understand some of these deep theological conversations that will come from this. But Lord, all in all, at the end of the day, I just pray that you help build our church up. Help us to grow more like you in all that we do. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the book of Exodus. Lord, I thank you for how it challenges our walk with you today. And Lord, I pray you will continue to do just that. It's in your name we pray these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.